Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How's everyone doing? Welcome to the show, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, whatever the fuck you want to call yourself. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. I hope you're having a nice workout or a nice drive or whatever the fuck you are doing. Welcome to the show. I'm out in the garage here at the Cat Ranch overlooking the barrio of Highland Park here in Los Angeles County, California. Very excited about today's show. For all you people wondering where the black people are, well, they're here. Dwayne Kennedy, W. Kamau Bell are in the studio today. They are on the show today. We are going to talk about black things. And later on uh, in the show, I'm going to get to some relationship stuff. Uh, you know, Almost Dr. Steve is going to come in and we're going to have a little session, work through some issues. I don't know why people assume that uh, someone is racist or someone is avoiding black people if they don't have a lot of black people on their show. I just don't know a lot of the black comics, so I have to reach out. But Kamau, I know from... Uh, from San Francisco, he's a great comic, and Dwayne is sort of a mythic uh, comic in the way that uh, he's very respected, and as soon as anything is about to happen for Dwayne uh, in a big way, in a show business way, Dwayne disappears, and we're just lucky to have him on the show today. I was thinking back about my own experience and about my own feelings about black comedy and and my own issues around race, which I don't really have many, because quite honestly... There was part of me, I believe, that always wanted to be black. I think that when I was younger, I know it to be true. Uh, I was a huge Richard Pryor fan. Uh, all the music that I liked, for some reason, I was turned on to the blues at a very young age. There was a guy named Jim who worked at a record store that I worked uh, beside when I was in high school, junior in high school, but even before that, who literally sat down with me for about four hours and uh, made me a mixtape of every important soul performer uh, of the last 40 years and you know, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, Sam and Dave, I held on to that. But somehow or another early on, I was turned on to blues music and Chuck Berry was really my first uh, hero, even though I got on board with that uh, later because I you know, certainly I wasn't uh, a child during the, the 50s or the birth of rock and roll. But I don't know what it is, but there was always an envy of the sense of community uh, that that black people had in my mind and and there was an identity to it and I think that when you're growing up a, a white kid a suburban white kid that you know it's sort of uh, kind of pablum kind of you don't have much to hang on to yeah I, I had the Jewish thing but not unlike many Jewish kids I you know I think I, I wanted to be black at some point I do remember an event that I think is sort of funny because it sticks in my mind when I was a kid, there was this doctor. Uh, my father was a doctor. And the guy who took my appendix out was this guy named Dr. Chester. He was one of the few black doctors in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And there, there are actually two stories that are, that are sort of awkward uh, uh, around Dr. Chester. My family had moved to New Mexico, I think, in 1971. I was about eight or nine years old. And within a couple of weeks of me being there, I had stomach pains. And my father didn't really know anybody, but he had met Dr. Chester, and my father made the assumption that I was having an appendicitis attack. So in the socially inappropriate way that my father uh, is, is wont to do, uh, he called Dr. Chester to come over to the house at night and examine me. He was a fairly portly black man, and my father, uh, in the bathroom at, at the home that we had just moved into, uh, you know, giving me a uh, proctological exam, a sort of you know, a bare bones proctological exam. So I, I, so there was an intimacy here that I didn't really uh, expect to be in a new town, in a new house, and within a month of being there, being you know finger banged by a large black man in the bathroom with my father watching. But but that happened to me, and and I I don't think we can call it sexual abuse. It was under the guise of medicine. So within a couple of days, I was in the hospital, and Doctor Chester took my appendix out. So he, I I have Doctor Chester's signature. On my right thigh, uh, a small scar that apparently most people have a, a diagonal appendicitis scar. Mine is horizontal. I don't know if he did it wrong or, or maybe he had a certain style, but that's not really the story I want to tell. The, the Chesters, uh, ultimately, we moved to another, another house, and, and Dr. Chester lived down the street from us at that time. Uh, I remember one day 
Uh, I must have been about 12 or 13 at that time. Uh, Dr. Chester and his wife came over to hang out at our house, and it was daytime. It was nice out. It was summer, and uh, I was getting ready to go do whatever an 11 or 12-year-old does, uh, and I was in my room, and I saw that Dr. Chester was there, so I decided I was going to I was going to get dressed up and, you know, and, and, you know, go out and be cool, uh, you know, because Dr. Chester was there. So I sported or I put on what I thought was cool to a black uh, guy. And I and I remember I put on a, like a, 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 a vest from a suit that I bought. It was just a green vest. And I put that on with no shirt. And I put one of them large caps on that my dad had brought back from New Orleans. It was called a Big Apple cap. And I, the only approximation I can give you is, do you remember like Rudy Davis from the Fat Albert show? One of those hats. So I walk out there just wanting to, you know, say hi to Dr. Chester and look cool. So I walk out there with my, uh, with my outfit and, and, uh, and it was all very innocent and in earnest. I just wanted to, to be cool. And, and Chester, Dr. Chester looked at me, he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, come here. So I walk over and I didn't know what he was going to do, but what he did was he just took my cap and he just tilted it over to one side. He goes, there you go. Now you're all set. And I remember being uh, very excited at that time. It was a very genuine moment and it was kind of funny, I think. I, I always think about race and I don't have anything uh, against anybody. I, I, I think in the sense that there's more of an envy on my part that there seems to be such a strong sense of community with, with almost every ethnic group. And I just decided to abandon mine, not not whiteness, but but uh, Jewishness to, to some degree. And you sort of wander around without a real community or, or group uh, in America sometimes if you're just sort of white <laughs> and, uh, and smart. You, you sort of have a group in your head. And it really more, it's about acceptance. You want to be accepted by other groups. And I did have a moment at the gym the other day that, that almost was uh, something racial. It wasn't racist, but I was on the treadmill doing my business. And next to me was a middle-aged Asian man uh, dressed inappropriately for the gym. He had the kind of you know strange walking shorts and perhaps loafers on, but he was walking on the treadmill. And I got on the treadmill next to him because it was the only treadmill there was. Uh, left and and I'm I'm starting to run and I smell this smell there there was a, a an odor you know coming off of this guy that was unique to I, I think his his Asianness it was almost like you know ginseng and garlic and it it was mildly offensive but I, I was tolerant uh, you know one I was tolerant and, and then in the middle of the run some another smell happened and it, it had to be gas I, I I have to think that the guy next to me. Uh, just farted and I'm not one to talk about farts but this was a profoundly pungent fart and it, and it smelled very specific it just it had the, a generational quality to it I just it was almost like you know epochs of 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 pork fat and shrimp had been you know digesting in the DNA of this person next to me for for centuries and and there it was I was in this methane mist of of just you know, what I pictured to be, you know, peanut oil, green onions, and it was pretty disturbing. And and I and I was angry for a minute. And then I realized, you know, there is something there is something so so specific and 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 community oriented about this guy's gas that this is the smell of China coming out of this guy's ass. And now I how could I possibly what kind of tolerance am I guilty of? to romanticize some guy's fart next to me as being sort of, you know, ethnically specific and representing a community and, and a history. And it, it, literally, I'm like, this is the smell of the future. And, and now I am enveloped in it. And I'm just going to have to accept that. And then I started to realize the thing about tolerance is that tolerance sometimes is earned. Not You can't be tolerant uh, uh, immediately. The path to tolerance is paved with a certain amount of of fear or anger or resentment that that, you know, in order to get to tolerance, you have to deal with your own issues. Yes, that could be a fortune cookie. Like, you know, if that guy, if I'd gotten off of the treadmill and we'd both gotten off together and I was still aggravated, uh, yet sort of, uh, you know, understanding about the smell that came out of his ass, if he had given me a fortune cookie. 
and I'd opened it and, and it said, uh, the path to tolerance is paved with fear and anger, that, that, that would have been a great way to end that moment, that, that event at the gym. But also I think that me thinking that is, is slightly racist. Yeah, I think so. I guess it's good that me and Dwayne do know each other very well, so otherwise this would be kind of awkward. Yeah. <laughs> More awkward than it already is. <laughs> I got these two black guys. In oh, my that's house. That's the awkward part. It is I for me. I quite comfortable. It's for me. Ah, oh, please. Don't start selling out now. <laughs> you know, don't buddy up. <laughs> Just because he's got his, his own show. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, my own to, show. Yeah, you want to throw me, you know, sell me out. Yeah, I'm going to throw Dwayne under the bus. Right. Not this time. I'm the one that brought you here. Drove you here. God damn it. I mean, darn it. Now, what's your your whole name is Dwayne Kennedy. Yes. And your whole name is W. Kamau Bell. That's right. W stands for, we'll Wal- keep that a mystery. All right. No, say Walter. It's Walter. All right. Now, folks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and speak to my audience just for a second. I've gotten a lot of flack for not having more black performers on my show. From who? From people that are, you know, th- not black people. Right, right. <laughs> They'd have to listen first. Right. That's right. right. From that one dude. Yeah. From- I, I think I emailed you myself. Yeah. As, your, as your black listener, I'd appreciate it. If exactly. Wyatt's an act. Well, no. Well, the weird thing is, is that it's, it's usually because I have a lot of people from, uh, from politics and from the left who mm-hmm. are like, I thought we had a big tent here. Yeah. Where, where are the black performers? <laughs> right, and, right. and quite honestly, I, uh, I, I just don't know a lot of black comedians because there is a separate world of black comedy that exists in, in its own universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, I, and I'm, I'm not adverse to having a, any type of performer on, and I certainly have a lot of respect for a lot of black comics, some that you know, a lot of comedians that I know listen to this probably don't even like, but I don't know where to get hold of them. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't even know where they're working. Well, unfortunately, as a black comedian, I don't know where to get hold of those black comedians <laughs> either, so <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah. Good now, luck with black, Earthquake. Black, yeah, well, but that's the thing. There's some black comedians that do like primarily black circuits, yeah. and then there's some... A lot of black comedians who do the same circuits you do, Mark. No, I know, and I know them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he well, had you know he, some black. He comedians. had him on, and I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I, Wyatt was on, and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I tried you, to get Hannibal Burris on, and uh, oh, no, Hannibal I, was just in town last week. Uh, he was. Well, he didn't get in touch with me. He did Lopez show. <laughs> oh, really? Last Wednesday. We'll that's let, a, we'll that's a whole know. other world. Yeah, Lopez is a whole other thing. I want to do that show, man. You do? Yeah. I now want to wait, now, I want to cast my net as as wide as I can cast. That's my new thing, man. Go all out, you know, and 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 let people see me and let those who like me make a decision. You no, know, let me not make it for them. Well, it's interesting if I can focus on Dwayne for a second because Dwayne is sort of a mythic entity in stand-up comedy in that. He shows up in town, whether it be uh, Los Angeles or wherever he is, and then there's a bunch of comics that go, "Holy shit, Dwayne's here." He's the best. He's one of the greatest. And then Dwayne disappears for months. <laughs> now, what is that about? Is it? Is it? Are you trying to protect the myth of Dwayne Kennedy, or is it that you just have other things to do? Like it's literally like where Dwayne go? I don't know. I think he's painting now or something. Yeah, I do. Somebody. T- yeah, I used to paint, man. I was I was painting porches. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing porches. Were you? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, working for my sister, man. I was uh, uh, painting porches, and I was taking cats around to the job sites, and I'd be in it a while, then I'd be out. My my ambitions were low. Is that true, or is it that, you know, you uh, you just sort of like... My aspirations were low. I mean, you know, I like being funny, and then that, that was it. Man, hey, man, I had a good show. That'll hold me for the next three or four months. Wow, three you or know? four months. Yeah. That if I have a good show, that'll hold me for about six hours before I start deconstructing. Oh, it I know saying, you, Mark. That doesn't even hold you during the show. <laughs> <laughs> In the middle of the show, right? You Why joked this, a joke. Why is this going so well? Right, right, right. I'll, <laughs> I'll put an end to that. <laughs> I better sabotage that right now. I love to. I love to hear Dwayne tell the story because people are constantly asking me to tell Dwayne's story. What's up with Dwayne? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, and, and the thing is, Dwayne, you, you've been on a lot of things, and then there yeah. was a period here where you're out here, and you, well, let's talk about the type of comedy that we all do, because I'll tell you straight up mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, I like watching black comedy almost of any kind, believe it or not. Okay. Like, I found myself watching that Shaquille O'Neal 
uh, NBA show that uh, who hosted it? Cedric the Entertainer. And I just don't I don't see enough of those guys around. I know those guys, but in, from where I'm sitting, being a guy that that comes from respecting Pryor a great deal and having a, a life changing moment when I saw Pryor's first movie in high school, that I just find that stylistically. There's something more immediate, more personal, more story-oriented about the way black performers perform most of their material in mm-hmm. a general sense that I envy. And do you come from that tradition? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, not you know really. what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. You come from the prior tradition. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I love prior. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I don't, you know, as far as like telling stories, I wish I could do that more. I wish I could do that better. But I don't, you know, I just mostly jokes. I guess you know what I mean not not one liners but you know things that what what no but yeah yeah you look at the again I have to tell the Dwayne story no but you definitely construct longer bits and you know you're not, yeah you know, okay yeah, yeah like yeah. scenes yeah 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 I right. do that yeah, yeah I know and okay, you certainly I've talk about your life and you know a little I, bit yeah yeah but I mean you've talked in direct and indirect way but you know yes. yeah no you're not I know, you oh know. I do want to do this thing about handing out flyers for a sham tax service <laughs> that I was doing last year <laughs> last in January year. man it was like about four or five below low you know what i mean yeah like nobody warned you to tell you hey man when you grow up don't ever wind up handing out flyers for a sham tax service about four or five below you know what i mean that's like failure you can't even see coming <laughs> i i just don't know what the i never understand really and i find that because kamal you come from san francisco yeah. you're, you're integrating the comedy scene up there in yes. the sense that there there is a, a mode of comedy now that i think is just by its nature, is segregated. I think that comedy is still segregated. Yes. I think that there are definitely two sides to to it, and that you go to some of these alternative shows. I used to say that. I'd go do Stella with those guys from the state, mm-hmm. and I would get on stage, and I'd say, this is voted uh, for the third year in the row the most non-ethnic experience in New York City, <laughs> that that there does seem wow. to be these two camps of of, uh, of comedy, if not more. More, that, yes. Yeah, well, that the black yeah. comics stay with the black comics and the ones that do you know, en- end up being accepted or integrated into, into, uh, into white mainstream comedy, they seem to have to do something different than they would do it. It's, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's well, more I think fractious also, than that, man. Well, I, I think, first of all, it starts with two things. One, it starts with America is segregated, more segregated than we realize, and I think that just lends its way into the entertainment industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is, is I think, and I've talked to a lot of comics about this, like uh, I know you know Al Madrigal, Sure. Like Al became way more Mexican after he started doing comedy. You know, like he's, you know, like, and not on, not that he tried to <laughs> pick up an accent, but suddenly he was like, he would talk about this. Suddenly he's being thrown on Mexican shows. And uh, if you ask Al, he's a San Franciscan. You know, yeah. that's his ethnicity. And suddenly Kevin Shea is another dude who was like in Erie, Pennsylvania or somewhere. Alan, like, grew yeah. up and suddenly he becomes a comic. Suddenly he's Korean, you know? Yeah. And he was, you know, he never thought of himself as Korean until. Somebody asked you to do a Korean comedy show, you but know? that's interesting yeah. because the 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 complaint always about some some black comics is that it's not that they get more black necessarily, but if they go the other way. Well, yeah, yeah I think like, you have to make. I think you have to make. That's the unfortunate part. You have to make some sort of choice. Like when I started doing comedy, like with Dwayne, I remember you told me early on. He's like, get real comfortable with black audiences because otherwise you will never be able to do them. You know. Hey, man, <laughs> and I'm still not. You know, but again, it it it, it reduces. It's not just you know. Uh, uh, thing was just black audience then no, no, you have no. particulars and fractions within that because their group i used to do uh, um in chicago remember bernie mack used to do a show right when he was in town he would do a show every tuesday at this club and it was great it wasn't the way a lot of people traditionally think of black audiences you know hard to do or to, because he cultivated the type of audience he wanted to have that i like to play for mm-hmm. he would tell beginning of the show hey no cell phones, no beepers, no hats, no heckling. No hats. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Really? You know what I yeah, mean? No, 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 he- no, he- no yeah. heckling. Yeah, no guns. <laughs> no, but respect no the... No shiny com- things, yeah, respect, no shoes. But respect yeah. the entertainers. Yeah. yeah. And you cultivate the type of people that want to be yeah. there for the show. Right. You know? well, I feel like when we talk about black audience, it's the same way with like black radio. It's really a specific type. Of like yes. R&B radio is a specific type of black music, but that's not all of black music. No. Either. But I think that ultimately, you, you know, in terms of the heart of American comedy, you just have got a few cats and... And, and Pryor is one of them, and yeah. there, there's a whole history of, of black comedians. But I think that with black audiences, in my s- small experiences with them, mm-hmm. uh, but I felt like I had to learn how to do it, that if you step up and you're honest 
and and you're not you know trying to get something over on them. Yeah, it'll look like you're pandering. That's right. Even if they don't like what you're saying, if you're respectful and and you stand, you know, you you fucking man up and do it. Yeah, they'll at least respect you. That's the thing where you get, especially as a white guy in front of a black audience, you get like crazy white boy credit a little bit. Like, yeah, they sort of will give you more room yes. if you are a black comic who's not doing it the way they want you. to Yes. Do it. Because I've certainly been on that end where it's like, how yeah. come that white guy's doing better than me? Right, right. <laughs> yes, that's true. So, For some reason, I wish, why do I wish I was white in this black comedy room? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I think right. I'd get more accomplished. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's true. They're man. angry at me for sounding like a white guy, but they like the white guy who sounds like a white guy. What about the white guy who sounds like a black guy? They I never like understand. They like him too. They do. And they I, really what, like him. What is that phenomenon? I've only known a couple of them, but there are a couple of white dudes that only play black rooms, and yes. I'm like, holy shit. You know, but again, it comes down to what you sense. If you sense that it's authentic, right? You know. Well, I think that's what I find with a lot of black comedy. Yeah, and, but if you sense this white cat on the stage is authentic. And that he's not putting on, and he's not Al Jolson, right? Do you know, right? Then people give him that leeway, right? You know, they give him those parameters, but but it's also a lot of. I think a lot of the black rooms, there's a little bit more of a. Also, if the if the character is funny enough, then yeah. it becomes a show. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that dude, uh, was that dude Simple John, or it was a white Honest dude? John, Honest John. He did the black circuit. He did the black circuit, but it yeah. was like a character. Like they sort of liked, they appreciated the spectacle of it. What kind like. of character? Uh, what I don't know how would you? I mean, but he was just a funny cat. He had jokes, and he right. did the black rooms, and he was comfortable. It, yeah, and, it was. Yeah, but it was just like he was. Like, I don't know. What, I don't know. Talk about like I said, anthropological, and he was comfortable. <laughs> he was comfortable. Yeah. He did the you know he ventured among the blacks, and yeah. he no, I didn't. Really, I didn't really see him that much. Like a lot of times, like how come that white guy does better than I do? It was but he was, but because he was comfortable and he was confident. Yeah, you know, and oh, you got to be confident. You got to be man. If there's something about a black audience that if you have any fear that's tangible, man, it's they can't over. wait. It's they can't over. wait. <laughs> See you later. They'll, yeah. get, they'll get a good show one way or the other. Yeah. So here, here's my thing uh, in terms of, like, it took me a long time to talk about race at all because I didn't think it was my place. And I've I've actually, with Kamau, he's been in the room yes. where I've tried stuff. Yes. And I'll, <laughs> and I'll come off stage and be like, is that kosher? Can I, am I allowed to speak about race. I'm the representative. Most <laughs> times, I think I say yes every time. I don't think there's a time I said no. Well, I, I, I do it from somewhat a personal experience. And I just got delivered a tag because the way I write, and I don't know if it's the way you work, that I'll have a joke that works okay on an idea way. Mm -hmm. And then I'll just keep hitting it until somewhere or another it, the tag is delivered to me on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Like that Sometimes. joke I did about, like, I'm not racist, but I'm nervous. Mm -hmm. so ah. It's really case by case and it's not ethnicity or, or race specific. It's just a normal human reaction to something yeah. that's, that's different. And then you adapt and you, you acclimate. It really doesn't become racism until you start hearing yourself say things like, oh, no, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> and in that, I just got that. But but I think the joke that that ended up becoming a pretty good joke is that is that uh, how I found out I was a little racist, and, yeah. that, and the only way you can find out is uh, next time you lose something that you think has been stolen. Oh, yeah! You know, when you go to retrace your steps, see how you cast that short mystery film. How many ethnic ties do you use in the leading roles of that movie? How many blacks and Latinos do you get through before you finally hear yourself say, "Oh shit, here it is under the car seat." Right, Jesus, right. I'm an asshole, right. and I'm a little racist, but I'm not going to tell my one black friend who I thought stole this. So. I, I just I, I find it difficult because I think that now that we have a black president and now that I, I think there's something about white comedians talking about race and I see it sometimes where I sense that it is misdirected that mm -hmm. the, I, the the original idea of, of whites talking about race if you're going to go to Lenny Bruce was that if you if you take on all ethnic types equally then you disarm the idea of racism yeah but now because there seems to be this weird misunderstanding of uh of the first amendment in terms of how to use race and comedy as a white person if you can be shocking mm -hmm. uh and use words that are racially inappropriate somehow you claim legacy to that idea but i don't think it exists no and i think that's one of the my big complaints with the alt scene is that you know there's a lot of racism in the alt comedy yeah, scene a whole lot of nigger going on exactly like i think he just wanted to say nigger i don't right. think there was a joke there i think you know i think that's true yeah, and, yeah. It, and, it, and me and him have had many occasions we've been oh, at man. alt shows 
with comedians who are known and unknown yeah. and, and suddenly be like, I think I got to leave. And it happens from comics that you would never expect it to happen from or comics that you can't ever. And it's weird. We, it's like I can't talk to white comics about it because then they think I'm crazy. But I don't understand that because what right do they have? Because what I was talking about with black comedy in, in the beginning and why it was a, an inspiration to me is these are people, whether they're hackneyed stories or not, you know, in the black comedy community, there's a lot of people doing the same shit. There's a lot of yes. black guys doing whenever they do a white guy, it's Pryor's white guy. Yes. And, and there's a lot of that going on. But yes. by and large, because of the community and because that a lot of black comics come out of uh, the black community is a real community. The white community doesn't exist. So some of the stories are, are, are common knowledge, and the reason why blacks stay within the community is because they understand the truth that is being told there, but it is personal experience. So when you get these white guys who don't even talk about themselves on stage mm -hmm. utilizing those words mm -hmm. only to get a, to effect mm -hmm. that they may not intend it as being racist, but you can't disarm that word. Just because you mm -hmm. all of a sudden found the freedom to say it to shock somebody mm -hmm. does not mean that word doesn't mean what it means. <laughs> well, I'm going to save this clip so I can play it for every white comic who tells me I'm wrong when I say something is racist happened on comedy stages because I think a lot of people think because they stand on a comedy stage then and they're a good guy it can never be racist no matter what I say. Right. And that, but also the, the legacy and the history of that word. I mean, I mm -hmm. learned that lesson the hard way. I worked with a guy who was black on the radio and I decided, you know, it would be audacious and, and <laughs> forthright of me to say, let's talk about the word nigger. Mm -hmm. And, and this guy, when I said that in that context, yeah. I mm -hmm. saw his eyes just go, hmm? like, like what just happened? <laughs> yeah. What did that guy just say? Yeah. That, that no matter how hard you try, even yeah. with someone like Quentin Tarantino, somebody else yeah. that, that word is just it's it's mm -hmm. it's not okay, and I think that that argument is what that argument is. It's like, aren't we beyond that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, maybe you are, <laughs> exactly. but yeah. you don't have a right to be beyond yeah. it. I yeah. earned being beyond yeah. that word. Yeah, but just just like you say, in that context, the way you stated it, even though I I don't like hearing, I don't care. Yeah, white people say it. I'll yeah. just be honest. But in that context. I can I can listen to you and I can hear what I can hear what you have to say. Yeah. I don't think you're trying to be shocked and you want to understand. We're, right. We're going to talk about it and I think it's core to say the N word and this and that. Yeah. But when you hear people talk about it and they use it and you know there is there's there's no context, there's no satire, there's there I've heard white cats say it as a matter of reporting. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And okay, you heard somebody say this. Right. Okay, fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when there is no context, yeah. that that's my issue, and it just seems to be because you know you know that it can shock, and also, in the, in the scheme of things, just in society, black folks are expendable. So I can say nigger all day long without any consequence to my show business career. Now, if I were on stage talking about kike, you know I mean, that would last about one show. And not, and, but not that I aspire to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't even want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? No, no, I know. It's like with, with Michael Richard. Yeah. You know, he's on stage talking about nigger and yeah, the nigger, yeah, nigger, yeah, nigger, yeah. and you know, fine. But only after it's discovered that he's saying that. Otherwise, it, he he'd done that before. He had to apologize for a show he'd done the previous night. Yeah. Well, why would he have to do that? It was only it's only because of cell phone cameras and YouTube exactly. that became something he had. Otherwise, it's been business apology. as usual. Yeah. You know, and it's certainly like, and I can't. It's huge in the alt comedy community, which is why I don't find a lot of home in the alt comedy community because oh yeah, you will man. get sitting there having a good time and suddenly out of nowhere for no reason. You know, either that either nigger or something that. It's just like, why you got to talk about black people like that we, when I'm the only one here? Well, we heard, we'll heard a show, and, and this cat will remain nameless. <laughs> but he's a famous cat. Yeah. yeah. Alternative, whatever, hipster, yeah. fine. Loved by, loved by all. Beloved by all. And me and Kamal were in the audience, and we were watching this cat, and he's on, and he's talking, and he's hip, and everybody's loving him, and we, no, fine. Good yeah. Cat. And he did a joke again where the word was just, it was no con, it was just gratuitous. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my sister is so and so. He's trying to illustrate how, I guess, how much contempt he had for her or how, how inferior, she, whatever. Oh. She's a so and so. Right. She's a so and so. She's a nigger. Right. Wait, what? What? <laughs> she, what? What's that even mean? Yeah, 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 and they got a big laugh because it was. Shocking. Oh yeah, they loved it, and we were the which ones was who, I think even 
to yeah. me, more surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought the alternative. I thought we were all cool. I thought we were the enlightened, yeah. visionary hipsters. Oh, they, they, yeah. It's just the no. weird thing is that, that I've noticed is that they take no risks at all emotionally with personal truths, mm-hmm. and exactly. that their idea of risk is saying something shocking or crass mm-hmm. yes. to 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 get an effect mm-hmm. or to to get an emotion from the audience. Yes. And I have found that like in the times like if I've used that word. Like I use, I tried to, I'm trying to do a joke now. I don't, you might even have a joke like this about the way that, that angry white people say socialist or he's a communist. (laughs) It's like, it's like, these are new ways of saying nigger. He's a social, it's at the same intonation. They just can't say that word. But that's always the subtext. Right. And and, and even saying it in that context, just using it as an illustration of, of racism, I don't. I have a hard time getting it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I think here's the thing. Well, I think, good. Yeah, I think that's exactly. That's what I was gonna say. Good. I would hope that you do. Yeah, think twice. <laughs> what was that? Not okay. <laughs> like I think, and that's the thing I think comics do is they go, "Well, I'm gonna say it anyway," and it's like, "Well, maybe if you don't, you sh- maybe you shouldn't say. Maybe you shouldn't say it." Just because you have the freedom to say it. Yeah, I just, it's just, I think it's it, it, historically and in terms of culturally being sensitive that they have, they have not earned, I mean, if it's still that offensive to black people, you just cannot disarm that word. And I think that there's a schism in the black community as well, because you Absolutely. meet some black dudes who are like, I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, say it all day long. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the consensus is it's going to come down to you. That's fine. That's one black guy. But mm-hmm. you're a white guy. And if you're really going to appreciate the history of what that word means, you, you, you're going to shoulder that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you've got a pass from one dude yeah. doesn't mean that it's okay for you to do it in any context. And it's also not brave to do it in a room full of white, white people. people. You know, that's, that's the thing. thing. Yeah, like, it's like yeah, it's you not... want to you want to nigger it up? Okay, I'll take you over to uh, we can go to sixty third cottage. You know what I mean? Yeah, and let it fly. <laughs> yeah, let's see if those bits work over there. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because you don't, you know, I don't know that you see a lot of white people talking about race. And I, I think that even the history of race in, in the way that Lenny Bruce set it up, mm-hmm. that, you know, his idea was to to disarm the language. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I don't know if it is within the realm of white people to address race if they don't do it from a personal point of view. Well, I mean, at the time, I think Lenny Bruce also being that he was Jewish, I think Jewish then was a much bigger ethnicity than it is now. You right. know what I mean? Like, so I think in some sense, at that point in history, he wasn't reaching as far as some as some liberal arts grad in who's at the who's at UCB is doing now. You know well, what I mean? Well, that's it. I think that the idea that these middle class bourgeois kids have decided to be uh, you know absurd buffoons mm-hmm. use big words and I you know and I'm not I'm I'm generalizing, mm-hmm. but I just think in terms of 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 what comedy is supposed to mean that they are not taking personal responsibility in relation to to what what it means culturally. Mm-hmm. And I, then I think there's also a lot of hiding behind irony too, which I think is really the other thing is that you do it and you I well, I meant it ironically. Well, I didn't hear it ironically. You know what I mean? I think there's a lot of hiding behind the free speech and irony, which I'm supportive of both those things as comedic tools, but you know, but I think that it like the, Often when I've talked to comics about this, white comics are doing things like this, I'm the one who's made to feel, they're trying to make me feel like I don't get it. Yeah. And you know, and it's like, <laughs> you, no, know, you just no, don't get it. I get it. I yeah, heard yeah, what yeah, you yeah, said. Yeah, I, I totally get I, it. I, yeah. And this is the reaction I'm having. <laughs> exactly. you, I can't have this reaction? Okay. All right. All right. So yeah, so that's the thing that bugs I'm me. I'm sorry. I didn't know they freed up the word for you to use. <laughs> it still bothers me. <laughs> you can say nigger, but I can't be offended. It's funny how that works. But again, like you said, I mean, free speech. People can say yeah. what they want to say, and yeah. then you just have to own. I mean, accept the consequences of what you say. If you want to say nigga, fine. You might get hit with a chair, <laughs> but that's a problem. Nobody gets hit with chairs anymore. Wow. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. like, right. back think, in the day, yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody gets hit with chairs, and I think you know, like we talk about these comics that we talk about very freely in other ways, yeah. who are like on top of the industry, and you're like, but are uh, <laughs> you yeah. know that I've worked with, and suddenly like that's you know that I see from a totally different perspective because yeah, of like the cat that. That came up after you and yeah, they yeah. said, "Get I have up a jo- come yeah, out." Yeah, I have a, I have a joke that I do. Well, I used to have a joke that I opened all the time that that I said "nigger" in it. And at the end, of, so the, at the beginning of my act, opened, brought him up, give it up for Kamal. He's one funny nigger. Mm-hmm. And that happened that that night. The audience was like, "Oh no!" Like, no. You know, like yeah. We liked him, and yeah, that's not yeah. the same. And <laughs> we like that nigga. Yeah, it's not the same. That's not okay. Exactly. Whether that's what it was or not, I was like, "I think he's our favorite tonight." Exactly, and that it didn't go well from that night. And he didn't say it the rest of the week. But this is a dude who. 
you know, you know, has a is has gone far and has done yeah, other stuff. Super and, famous, yeah, yeah, super famous, and yeah. you know, and if I and I don't tell that story to a lot of people because I don't want to hear. Well, he he meant it ironically. Well, I think he was trying to buy credibility, and that everybody's on the same page, and you know, mm-hmm. he's good with you, and mm-hmm. I can do that. And they turned yeah. on. It's interesting about. But it's like also he hadn't gotten good with me. Right. We had just, we hadn't even, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we, cause there's times where comics will say, make fun of you and you're like, well, that's my friend. It's cool. But right. yeah, that's what I felt like. We aren't friends yet. You know? Right. Let's, well, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Cause I, I've done, you know, you, if you get to a certain level, like there are certain dudes I know, like, uh, some black comics that, that I know well, Todd Lynn, Keith Robinson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a few other dudes where you can have a back and forth about Jews yeah. and blacks and yeah. whatever, yeah. but yeah. it still has to be earned on some yes, level. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I've certainly been in a situation where comics will do things like that where you, it's fine, you know. Right. And even if the audience doesn't like it, you laugh at them because they made a mistake. It's right. Like, but this was not a situation where we had yeah. bonded. And then we didn't bond after that. You know, it's not like he ever, oh man, you know, it's not like if I see him now, we're not friends. You know? Right. You know? I had a cat say that very same thing. I would tell you that was emceeing at, uh, at, at Zany's. And same thing, man. I got off stage. Give it up for Dwayne. He's one funny nigger. All right. And then, but then I think after he said it, he even said, "Oh man." <laughs> then he called me from the back. Dwayne, hey Dwayne. <laughs> I don't know if wanted to bring yeah. me back on stage. Or, Come dude. back up here. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Well, I think what what, what it speaks to, and, and and I think is just that this idea that that it's we're living in some sort of post-racial world Mm -hmm. and but i think what it speaks to more is that comedy mainstream comedy is fundamentally white Mm -hmm. and because these these kids are smart Mm -hmm. and and they feel that that buys them some leeway and that they've disarmed this language it's just a word it's just a word they never get called on it Mm -hmm. yeah so so they they've created this other world where they can say these words that are loaded Mm -hmm. and it just becomes part of the comic experience Mm -hmm. without any respect for it 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 drives me a little nuts Uh, because I just I I don't I don't understand the point of it because it is not and a, sometimes it could be funny though I give you that it's funny if it's balanced and, yeah. and it, the the thing is is that I, I know people that use the word and and they 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 are playing with words man and they they don't hate black people exactly I, I heard a white cat open micer man years ago open mic sounds so patronizing that cat might whatever he's doing <laughs> no one's he's, an open micer anymore they just produce shows everyone's a comic <laughs> well, there's no right, such thing as an open micer anymore <laughs> but this guy had one of the funniest jokes i ever heard about that he said he'd play on the playground and you know he'd play with the brothers you know playing basketball you know he said you always hear you always hear brothers saying now nigga please nigga please but what you never hear is nigga thank you <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's different. he's just reporting that's right that's yeah. right. it seems to me that that this idea of the of the black president and, and what that represents to black people, and what it represents to white people, obviously it's all becoming somewhat of a disappointment. Yeah. But but that that racism, if anything, is probably stronger now. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and, and the other thing I was going to say is that like this assumption that people are okay. I worked with Paul Mooney for for a week once in Sacramento, and and as much as I, I like uh, you know I respect Paul Mooney. I, I'm not a huge fan, but I, but I get it. But I didn't really get it. Until I I worked with him because with him everything's nigger everything's nigger yeah. every joke yeah. yeah and I just never understood it I it felt gratuitous to me that you know we 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 you know I understand the the point but what he does because Sacramento is a white audience yeah so I'm middling for him all week and he's doing two hours yeah and 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 it's all That's that stuff all? right yeah. yeah right two two and a half hours and it didn't it didn't hit me until I realized what he was doing is that he's finding the racism. In people that think they're not racist, because <laughs> after about an hour and a half of that, you know, I have to assume that at least a handful of people in the audience are going, "I get it. When's this nigger going to shut up?" <laughs> <laughs> and he would prefer them to leave, right? right. <laughs> yeah. But he found it, yeah, because yeah. there's this assumption, like, "I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist." Yeah, many people don't hate black people, so categorically, they're not racist. But that yeah. doesn't mean they don't look at them as different. Well, I think right. that's I think Which our we de- all do. and I think our right. definition of racism is too. It sort of. Racism is defined as like a hate crime, and I think that's not, it's not always, it doesn't always end up in death. It's like racism can be, like, I feel like there's levels of racism. Right. We, it, it, I think fundamentally racism is we are not the same yeah. because you are black. Yes. It, it's not like you are black, you should die. No, no, no. And I think it just, it just, what, ha- after you decide we're not the same, what is your next thing? I'm not going to hang out with you or I'm going to kill you. And I think there's, or there's you don't whole, deserve that job. Well, I'm or, not going to yeah. hire you. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That's racism. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes Which talk about racism. does impact your life. Yeah you know, fundamentally, eventually, you know, and, yeah. and, and waves and ripples, yeah. you know, I don't mean you any harm, but I don't mean to help you in any way. But then that when 
a large group of people feel like that and it becomes consensual, then that does begin to marginalize you and then that does begin to impact your life. Mm-hmm. Just in, in less goods and services in your community and less health care and on and on and on. Now the quality of your life is diminished a little bit, but it wasn't like anybody directly mm-hmm. doing anything, mm-hmm. but it's, it's this consensual think that kind of pushes you away. And it's also just the feeling of being otherized too, which I was like, we were talking about this today. Like I was like, I don't think white people realize how many white people there are out there. Like, I don't think white people look around like there are a lot, like a lot of white people out there. And it's right. like, in that sense, like, which I think white people take for granted how safe that feels, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that like, I really want white people to start paying attention. Think how many white people, like we were watching CNBC today, because right. that's how we roll, right? right. how you roll. Right, right. <laughs> and it was just I'm like, we were just talking to. about like, it's all white people talking about the money, which is kind of a... Huh. Right, you know, what right. I mean, like, what does that mean? Of course, they're working for the Jews, and- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it's not even that we're saying they're saying bad things or they don't like black people, but it's just like that's an otherizing thing that people don't realize the well, toll that takes. I have no tolerance for people that don't believe that there is institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I, I don't care how comfortable anybody is. I mean, I lived in Boston for a long time oh, and everyone man. thinks about Boston like Boston there's all those colleges Boston's the most racist mm-hmm. segregated oh, yeah. like literally they're like where are you hiding the black people <laughs> yeah. oh they're way out yeah. there yeah. It's, it's like an encampment for fuck's yeah. sake over yeah. in Roxbury right yeah. Roxbury and then Mattapan. there's a in Mattapan and then there's yeah. also that those projects way out at the uh, on the point by the water that it's literally should just be a, a prison but in San Francisco, it's not so integrated either, really. No, no. San Francisco is like 5% black and, and falling. <laughs> and I just don't, I, I don't understand. At 90% Oakland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how does, in, in terms of performing for you guys, because you guys are like, there. I have to understand, I have to believe that within the black comic community, there are those dudes that are in the middle. There are those hardcore black comics. Like Bernie Mac's a great example in, in him setting a tone because he was an honest fucking guy. Yes. And and he talked about real life and he talked yeah. about it you know, in an angry way, but he was not fundamentally preaching to any, any sort of racist no. idea. No. He was just defining black comedy for the community. Right, and he was just a cat just want to be funny tell tell jokes and the, the funny part is i don't want to speak for kamal but just how i was socialized which is what led me to do comedy in the places that i did it is because i grew up in integrated to predominantly white neighborhoods uh-huh. so when i started to do comedy yeah i would gravitate toward those types of venues mm-hmm. so i started at zany's i started in front of predominantly white audiences so my agenda was initially one of the things i mean you know i got a million reasons for wanting to get on stage you want to whatever assuage whatever whatever but one of the things was well i'll speak to white folks about race and then sort of we can start to understand each other mm-hmm. and you you know which you realize is useless after a while, <laughs> you know. But where, but then you have cats like Bernie or other comedians that operate within a completely black sphere, so they're not even talking about racial things a lot of times because yeah. everybody understands. No, no black person needs to be told that they get discriminated against. We all know that. Yeah, Just tell yeah. me some jokes, <laughs> yeah. right? You know? That's right, right. But yeah, that, yeah in that, in that. When I see that kind of comedy, I am envious of the community understanding of the black experience only because and this is odd, and I'm, I'm not certainly not speaking as a victim, but I, you know, it, you know people are like, well, how many black friends do you have? I, I have two friends, period. And, <laughs> and, and, and literally, I don't have a community. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the heart of comedy, even with the Jews trying to pass and with the blacks trying to, to, to come into show business, mm-hmm. that these were community-defining events, and they talked about community mm-hmm. truths, mm-hmm. and there was a story tradition there mm-hmm. that is completely annihilated now. Yeah. And that, you know, that's why all the truth that comes out, if you see, you know, white guys doing truth, or even black guys doing truth it's hackneyed Mm -hmm. because it's all been done before so that's if there's any apology to be made for alternative comedy it's that these guys are without a community they're without a world they're just floating in this universe of words and images Mm -hmm. that that means ultimately fucking nothing Mm -hmm. so they're just they're they're clowns with no depth (laughs) no depth that's i think that's it mark i think i mean just forget the color part i mean just a lot lot of great comedy comedy just comes out of pathos you know and a lot of these people grew up you know pretty good lies pretty pamper whatever whatever but well i can't talk about that that's not too funny so i'll be dangerous Mm -hmm. i'll be risky Mm -hmm. i'll say things that are Mm -hmm. inappropriate right because my life in itself has not been that bad you know when 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 prior could talk about a cat coming around and asking him how you doing is your mom home i'd like to blow job 
It's pretty sad. <laughs> Funny, it's but great. sad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, it's, it's great. pathos yeah. there. Well, yeah, and that and that stuff is it, it's a little harder to sell now because of of the way television has treated this world. That if you have any sort of painful stories, somehow or another, you're a victim of something, and mm-hmm. and that it becomes harder to tell those tales. Yes. Uh, do you get flack from black comics? Um. Yeah, I was gonna say not not my flack doesn't come from black comics, not for, not at all. Especially like you know, not in years. No, I don't think I don't think black comics are thinking about me. I think black comics are going for right. theirs. You know, I don't think I'm any sort of as of yet any sort of challenge to the black comedy throne. So. Well, we're <laughs> when, sort of in limbo. Man. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. What I mean. That's, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, like because... I had to like I created my own one person show up in the Bay Area. That the I've Bell been, Curve, the W Come Out Bell Curve, ending racism in about an hour. Uh, and uh, I'd create it in the Bay Area, and it's been great because now black people are coming to see me because they've heard of the show. And so now I have a black audience I didn't have before because those black people didn't know where I was or didn't yeah. know that I was something they would or like. Or might not have even come to comedy. Yeah, clubs. might not even come to comedy. So I've had to go find an audience. Like now I have black audiences, which is great, but the black audiences already know what they're getting into. So but, that's the thing, man. But I, it must be a type of black audience. Yeah. That is exactly yeah, because, yeah, like, I know for a fact. You know, I had this conversation with my with my former partner a lot that within the black community there is a drive to 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 keep it black, and that and and how that is defined can get a little dicey, mm-hmm. in the sense right. that like if you are if you are considered to be toming at all, mm-hmm. right, then, then which can constitute. A myriad of things. <laughs> right. I don't like the like, way that brother speaks too clearly. What? <laughs> I can understand what he's saying. You better get your time ass. Right. You know what I mean? Those- How come you're not talking about that dude's head in the front row? It's pretty big. That's right. Are those two black dudes on Mark Maron's show? Those yeah, Uncle yeah, yeah. Tom mother. Yeah, yeah. So where do you see the future of it all going? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to get 2012. <laughs> done? December 21st. Oh, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm doing the 2012 tour right now. <laughs> Try to Just like in Hollywood, every, starting it out early. Every city I wouldn't mind dying in. That's a, do, you, do you sense anything uh, changing? Do you sense anything different to you as performers You know, since uh, Obama's been president? Or do you feel that there's more tension? I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, personally, I feel like... I feel like when I used to talk about race on stage, I was having racism on stage. I was having to prove it to the audience in some way that I don't feel like I have to prove it to people anymore. So now they understand that they're yeah, racist. Yeah, they understand. Like, yeah, it's racist here. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's much, it's a much easier way to we, talk we about it. We saw the things. numbers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I've stopped. I think I've stopped talking about race as much, man, just because just to give myself a break and just trying, you know, for me, again, talking about where we came up doing comedy, I've tried to move toward doing more black audiences mm-hmm. in theory <laughs> <laughs> all right fellas you feel good yeah anything else great, you want to cover come out no I'm, I'm i'm good where's yeah. your show playing anywhere soon uh actually i'll be uh yeah i'll be doing it in uh oakland or berkeley it's in oakland at the la pena theater in may in May? In May. All right, that's the uh, W. Kamau Bell Curve. You can so, uh, check Keaton, my website. Yeah, what is your website? X, you can either go to wkamaubell.com, if you can spell all that, or just go to goodshownegro.com. Okay. Did you say dot .tom? <laughs> oh, shit. What? <laughs> oh, shit. <Ducky. laughs> I, can say, I can still say, oh, shit, right? Like that? Sure, man. Thanks, you need, buddy. To, need to practice it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get the reference. Right. I mean, you you were cool all the way until you asked. Uh, <laughs> if yeah. you're asking, then no. I think I just tommed myself. Yes. All right, Dwayne Kennedy, DwayneKennedy.net. Yeah. And you can see the history of Dwayne Kennedy and wonder when he's going to come back. Yeah. All right. Uh, my guest is soon to be Doctor Steve. We, he doesn't like. He, you seemed a little offended. You were like, we don't have to call me almost anymore. I'm almost done with my dissertation. Uh, it wasn't really offense. It was just more sort of uh, fact check. All right. Well, you wanted to. You want to be valid, is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I, I don't want to say Doctor Steve. It's pretty kind of illegal to say Doctor Steve unless I'm fully okay. Doctor Steve. All right. So we're almost Doctor Steve. So we got some emails. Uh, re your last uh, performance on the show. I don't call it a performance. I call it a session. Mm-hmm. The last session we had about porn and porn addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, that short part you did with your friend, the therapist, probably the most helpful, insightful, important, self-realizing thing I've heard in the last seven years. Wow. Thanks to you, I feel like I have the emotional and intellectual tools to identify and deal with what I've been feeling. I didn't even realize it was a what-the-fuck moment. How blind was I? But I see it now. Thanks for the catch. I think I got it. Thanks for being awesome. A grateful dude. 
Wow. It took one 15-minute session. That the, wasn't even his session. That's right. The most meaningful, what do you say, the most helpful, insightful, important, self-realizing thing I have heard in seven years. He didn't include the thing, but it was in whatever we talked about. That's a very, um, we helped somebody out there. You're welcome, by the way. Thanks for the email. That's right. Almost Dr. Steve getting, uh, helping the people. And as I said to you on the phone, since we do have conversations about this in reality, that given my two marriages and given my anger problem, I find that a lot of, I, I don't know how to be in love if I'm not obsessed with the person. And also, I don't know how not to be, uh, it's, it's, anger is weird. I, I just, I, I started to look back honestly about my second marriage and even my first one and realize that I'm not sure I know how to deal with intimacy at all. Mm. I don't know how to deal with emotional trust that well. Uh, it's not about love and intimacy for me or trust and intimacy. It's really about tension and release, mm. drama. And I feel bad about my anger problem, but I don't know where that comes from. And I think that if we sort it out, because I know I got a lot of angry guys out there. Mm. And I know they try to overcompensate in other ways for their anger. And everybody snaps a bit. And if you find somebody that'll take it for a while, well, then you got a good thing going. Mm. But, but ultimately, they're going to fill, you're going to drain them is what's going to happen. They're just going to become a depleted emotional husk filled with your bile. Mm. So I was trying to figure out where that anger comes from. First of all, also it drains you. You One who acts out on anger that's extensively and um, on an ongoing basis, uh, their stress levels, their heart rate, their breathing rate, their everything, their body but, temperature is okay. going to be through the roof. So there's another... But you just explained all the results of exercise. I want you to be clear. On that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm totally uh, right. with so, that. I mean, so I'm saying that, you know, you can do one or the other and mix them up. You, you, <laughs> you rage like an idiot one mm -hmm. day, mm -hmm. a little cardio a couple days later, mm -hmm. maybe a, a workout with some weights mm -hmm. on the third day. You know, I find that I'm a lot less angry when I don't have a person directly in my life. Mm. And I, I was dating this woman for a while, and, and we're going to take a little, a little time here mm -hmm. off. And just because I don't... First of all, let's talk about, let's, let's try to break it down. Why can't I be in love without being obsessed? Here's the thing. As almost doctor, I'm spending a lot of time on this dissertation and I'm looking at this subject a lot, but yeah. I'm looking at it through the eyes of um, trauma. And you, you, last time we talked about trauma bonding or you brought up trauma bonding. Yeah. And where a lot of this anger comes from, where a lot of this... Um, inability to get close to someone to be able to trust somebody to be able to just get in there and be feel safe yeah is from some kind of trauma that happened earlier in life and when i say trauma i'm not necessarily talking about you know 9-11 or things like that i'm not talking about those things necessarily or or, or perhaps a personal 9-11 of the ass something like that Go ahead. I, again you've, yeah. you've you've i i i have to digest and then continue <laughs> So it doesn't have to be trauma to the point where you, 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 uh, it's, it, it seems irrecoverable. Or, or, or you're just saying that it could just be emotional trauma. Well, first of all, usually it's interpersonal trauma, as in someone else was involved in creating that trauma for you. Um, a lot of times it's sort of chronic. It, mm -hmm. you know, it goes on for a long time. So I'm not necessarily even talking about full-scale, you know, God forbid, child abuse. But I'm talking about, you know, those sort of what we call small T traumas that can bring a person to so, so let's not say trust people. Being brought up by selfish, needy people that had no boundaries at all and used me to validate themselves almost constantly and had no sense of values or discipline. Could this could this have done that? Uh, yes. Oh good. So we fixed it. Yeah, okay, well, so no, we didn't fix it. We've we've discovered what what's there and but see and this then, is uh, this is the racket you guys are in all right so i feel like we've discovered it and mm -hmm. i knew it already mm -hmm. but what about the fixing you know i mean the, is it a racket i mean is there any fixing oh there's totally absolutely and positively well how long does that fucking take well the fact is depending on the level of traumatization it can take a little longer than people want it to take and then you got to find somebody who wants to put up with that shit of you working through this issue you mean the intimate partner the intimate partner who cares about you, and, mm -hmm. and because they care about you, you find that threatening, but you're trying to work through that, mm -hmm. and it's just a constant daily struggle to not resent them for liking you. So then there's all these people out there yeah. who are possibly at the level where they know where they're at, Right. they're willing to do the work yeah. to discover what's going on, and, okay. and then they meet someone else who's at that same level, and the two of them can 
quote unquote, put up with each other as they work through it. See, that sounds exhausting to me. That sounds more exhausting than recovering That's from anger. Only, well, actually, you mean the, the, the anger burst? Sort of the, the challenge of working through something emotionally. I mean, why wouldn't you just want to, you know, uh, have sex and, and then, you know, fight and then, you know, cry and then, you know, have sex again and just do that cycle because that's rewarding in its own way. But I guess you end up feeling a little empty. I was, yeah, that's the part. Where the empty kinda, part? Yeah, the empty part. The empty part where you're only left with uh, the scars of your childhood? Mm-hmm. Mm. Just yeah. you alone with your holes. Or with the person next to you, <laughs> no. you alone with your holes. Even worse. Uh, it's even worse when you... Yeah. yeah, but you know, is anybody in, even in the same relationship? That's another thing I realized recently, is that if you don't have communication, which is, I think, where a lot of the anger comes from, mm-hmm. like, it's very hard for a guy to say, I'm just feeling sad right now. I just need you to hold me. Mm. You know, I... I, I I have this weird mixture just from pretending in that voice of of incredible embarrassment and hostility. Mm-hmm. Just happened in me right now. Right here, right by, now. By using that example. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? It's good. And this is a good session as a result. The fact is that you're right here. I could cry so easy. It. I could cry so easy right now. Mm-hmm. I've been having dreams about my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And it's tragic. It's tragic. Because I feel like I'm over it in the angry way. Like, I'm like, I get why she left me. I'll never forgive her for screwing me on the money. But I understand I was difficult. And I and I went through all that anger and all that sadness for two years. And now I'm starting to realize it was just PTSD from abandonment and, and damaged pride. And now I think I'm really starting to have the feelings of like, wow, I really was in love with her. My dreams. I have dreams. I had a dream where I just saw her. I knew she wasn't with me anymore. I knew she was pregnant with someone else's child, but we were just walking and I said, I just, I just, can I just look at your face? And I started crying. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned PTSD and this is something more along the lines. It's got, uh, well, there's, there's something called complex PTSD, which has not yet hit the DSM. Wow. Something you made up? It's no, I, I, I wish I could have made it up because then I would complex be the genius PT- who came up, came up with it. Complex PTSD. Yes. And what it is, it's referring to these, this kind of um, ongoing, chronic, the abandonment stuff, you know, all that kind of thing that brings on a whole cluster of other symptoms. The, the dreams. I mean, that's PTSD is built on the intrusive thoughts and the dreams. And things I like completely that. think that people who get heartbroken have PTSD. Absolutely. I mean, I was like, I had it for like two years. My memory got fucked up. Mm-hmm. I was incapable of thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. I was incapable of focusing on my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I wasn't even angry. I couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. It was ridiculous. But you know why, ultimately, why it came, what it came down to when she left is that all those hurt feelings manifest themselves in anger because my pride was injured. Mm-hmm. And I realized, I think for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. deeply, that you don't have any control over another person mm-hmm. unless you know you lock them in the house and hit right. them which i'm that's not my thing inability to manage anger is one of those things when when not if complex ptsd becomes a dsm diagnosis mm-hmm. the inability to deal with anger or mismanagement of anger is going to be one of the criteria why does it feel good to hurt people mentally revenge you know mm. it's sort of it's it's that feeling of um, most people that I've experienced who enjoy or have this good feeling from hurting people have been hurt themselves. And so right. it's, I don't, it's I don't mean a physically. primitive way to, I understand what you're saying. I mean, like when, when you argue with somebody, when you're mm-hmm. yelling at somebody, mm-hmm. when you're in a relationship that is driven by your own emotional insecurity, so you start lashing out at them, and then when they start getting upset or crying, then you're like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, oh, you know, I didn't mean to. Like that thing is the most disturbing part of the uh, uh, anger issue, the abusive part. Um, in order to manage or to come to new terms with one's anger, first one has to come to terms with the fact that anger is actually very natural. It's not evil inherently. It's just another feeling. The problem is, is that if we don't have a way of managing it, it's part of our, this is part of the communication breakdown, is that if I'm not able to manage my anger, then inevitably... I'm going to act out on it. I'm going to turn you into a husk. And then you even sort of play acted the end of that drama, which is I'm the husk too. Right. So isn't anger really just crying all worked up? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's sadness underneath anger and there's also, I like to look at anger as uh, a person's feeling that comes up when their needs aren't getting met. 
right? I mean, it's based way, way down in fight so or flight. So you're saying that I'm angry all the time. Well, I don't have to have this needs. conversation to know that about you, Mark. <laughs> a lot of needs aren't being met at all times, but they're infantile needs. Yes. They're and needs that aren't ever going to be met. Well, mm-hmm. they, you're, No one's going to be your parents. If you're mm-hmm. yelling at a woman, I've said this before on stage, you know, 95% all you should be saying is, why can't you be my mommy? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, if you were poorly parented, that opportunity is over, right? You're going to have to take up the reins and parent yourself and not expect, you can't walk through life like you're a kid lost at a mall. My therapist back in New York, yeah. Simon Eccles, may he rest in peace, he died last year. Sorry. He, absolute genius. And mm-hmm. he used to always talk to me about like, what we're, all we're doing here is reparenting. All we're doing here is reparenting because, you know, you just need a new job done. And, and so what do you think of people that are like, you know, just fucking pull yourself together, buck up. You mean like Ronald Reagan or? I'm not talking about politically, but some people are like, you know, tough love the sort of like suck it up. Dr. Phil. Sure. A little of that. Mm-hmm. What do you what think we, of that approach? I don't think it works. Okay. I mean, there's there's room for that, mm-hmm. but as a cut all, you know, a, a, a cookie cutter, mm-hmm. catch all, like you know, just you know, pick yourself up, Mister. Mm-hmm. You know, abandoned as a child that didn't you know have any parenting, yeah, abused, whatever. Just sure. pick yourself up. Yeah, it doesn't work. All right. What do you ever do? Anger exercises? Do you have exercises with you? You mean like to... throwing things and? No, I don't know. Like some. Like give me a, give me an assignment that I can do right now. Um, what what I would like you to do for the next you know mm-hmm. few days, yeah. and maybe you can revisit it with your listeners. Yeah, is I want you to anytime you get angry, I want you to be able to rate it on. And actually, we can do it right now. Okay, rate your level of anger on a scale from zero to ten. Zero is you're like a guru in a cave, and if someone came up to you and spit in your face and said you're a crappy guru, you know you would be like, oh, well, that's okay. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. A ten is. Uh, First Prius you see coming towards you on the street, you just haul off and try and punch it in the grill. I had a little problem today because I went to yoga today, which I always find aggravating. Mm-hmm. And I walked through the market, uh, the the farmer's market in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and there's this old Asian guy or Hawaiian guy that plays guitar, and it's completely incomprehensible what he's saying, what you know, his guitar style. He's shouting, and it's horrible. It, and he's there every week, and I and I, I resented him. Then I resented uh, all of the the women that look the same there. You know, this sort of like hip hugger, long hair, you know, pilot glasses, this standard kind of Hollywood Laurel Canyon, nineteen seventy one. Only these women are fifty, walking around looking the same. I started to resent them. Then there were people with kids, and I started to resent them. And then I decided, look at this fucking clown parade. Nobody's being real here, and I resented all of them. What level was that? Probably an eight because I was aware that it was ridiculous. Okay, great. That's exactly, that's the exercise. And the reason why it's the exercise is that if you do this long enough, you will start to see the difference for you between a five and a six and an eight. Mm -hmm. You'll see how to bring yourself down. Maybe you were at a 10 and then you said clown parade and it got down to eight. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get your resting anger level down. The, The key word here is acceptance. You know, like you accepted, I guess, on a, on a, level, a certain level that yeah. it was a clown parade. And that's yeah. what made part of what made it feel better. So it's sort of accepting right. of yourself for who you are. And this goes back to the intimacy, too. Mm. A lot of the reason why people are unable to be intimate with each other is because they have a low level of acceptance of themselves as just being human. Well, I also find that being intimate, I feel like it's hard for me not to feel like I'm being manipulated, number one, mm-hmm. and not to feel like now I owe somebody something, and not to mm-hmm. feel like, um, well, if I if I put that all out there, how am I ever going to get out of this? Mm-hmm. That I'm just, there's part of me that's not ready for it, but I don't think I've ever been ready for it. Mm-hmm. Y- you know what I mean? Because then the trust becomes like almost necessary. Like it becomes almost like uh, dangerous. Mm-hmm. That like, well, now that you've got that part of me, how do I know you're going to take care of that? That's what all of that, everything you just said uh-huh. is what is what blows trust out of the water for people who've had a rough time earlier in their lives. Right. You know, every, everything, you know, all that. So I made the list. You, you made the list and it made me want to shut off the microphones and like get you on a couch and start, you know, like finish this session oh, yeah? without witnesses. No, in that you, you, you really, and, and I think this is helpful for people listening to like hear that, like all of those different things that go into, you know, like I have a, I have a newborn 
daughter. Mm-hmm. And I, I just met her. Very I, pleasant woman. Very, <laughs> and she smiles a lot. She's she's a lot great. of hair. Very a lot of hair came out. Yeah. Anyway, I just see you know I see the innocence, and I see this looking at things, and you know she doesn't see the tree and name the tree tree. She just sees it and goes whatever. You know mm-hmm. what's that? Mm-hmm. And you know at some point along the way, all those manipulations of society and everyone whatever mm-hmm. you know all those things happen. You know someone busts our trust. Someone busts our trust on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Of course, the trust is going to be gone. Of course. So, so we have a, a distended mental anus from being mind fucked for so long. Well put. Hmm. All right. Well, I think we've covered enough because I'm exhausted. Is that what you're supposed to feel after a session? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. I feel emotionally exhausted and I want to go yell at a stranger. Well, uh, what I advise you to do mm-hmm. is instead of yelling at the strangers, reach back inside yourself and figure out where on zero to 10 you're feeling it. And instead of yelling at the guy, just kind of number it. And then at the end of the day or sometime during the day, journal a little bit about, you know, that level of anger, what you wanted to do to the I think stranger. it's all about just crying. I think that usually, you know, when you're angry, you should just take a deep breath and sit down and cry on the street. Not a bad piece of advice. Thank you, Almost Dr. Steve. We'll, we'll be doctor next time we talk to him. Sounds good. Okay, that's it for today. I hope I helped you out. I hope we got some things cleared up. We certainly covered a lot. Covered a lot on this show. We, I think we solved the racial problems. I think we, we solved some relationship problems. The two R's, racial, relationship. I just, I don't know what the third R is. Making it up. And as always... Maybe I'll do this at the end of the show because I was too caught up during the show to pow. Oh, my God. I just shit my pants. Justcoffee.coop. Go there or go to WTFpod.com to get the link to justcoffee.coop. Also, at WTFpod, we're putting videos up. They're there. There's some videos from the live UCB shows, one of which will be on February 19th at the UCB Theater here in Los Angeles, 8 p.m. with Mary Lynn Rice Cub, Lori Kilmartin. Jackie Cation, Jim Earl, and Eddie Pepitone. Uh, as always, go to punchlinemagazine.com for all your comedy information. The pulse of the comedy biz at punchlinemagazine.com. And I think that's it. I think we've covered what we need to cover. Uh, get back to me if we didn't. I'm getting the emails, but now, of course, that I said that I, I read all the emails, there's a lot of them. So that's going to take me a day or two to, to get at. All right. Have a good day. <laughs>